and welcome to episode 58 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the first story from episode 14 of season 2. It's called The Different Ones, written by Rod Serling, directed by John Meredith Lucas. It is, well, it was originally broadcast on December 29th, 1971. And um, for us and the the Night Gallery podcast, this will really close out uh, my discussion about the dealings between Jack Laird and Rod Serling in terms of the friction between the two. Certainly until we reach season three and the start of that and um, his opinions about the change of the of the format of the show. But until then, let us uh, first of all get our story introduced by Rod. The name of this place should you have come in here accidentally out of the rain is the night gallery. We deal in paint, pigment, Light and shadow, realism, surrealism, impressionism, and ghost stories. Item number one over there. It could be a gentleman sitting in an electric chair, but it isn't. What it depicts is, in a sense, a method of execution that we humans reserve for other humans who happen to be dissimilar to us. You're about to look under that hood and meet firsthand one of the different ones. Tonight's first excursion into the realm of the unusual. We're in the future again for a a night gallery story. There's a man called Paul Koch, who's played by Dana Andrews, and he's a widower, and he has a son with a terrible disfigurement. He is, uh, his name's Victor, and since birth, his face has been incredibly uh, marked. It really stands out. Uh, that, that Victor's played by John Corks. He is a boy tormented over his deformity, now at the age of 17 and a half. He's about to enter adulthood and can't really find a way of, well, you know, he, he can't leave the house with people standing outside, sh- children standing outside, screaming abuse at him. So unusual is his deformity. There is little he can do about it. And um, although his, dad, his father Paul is of the opinion that he can somehow protect him from this and possibly find somewhere for him to go where he can live his life happily with people similar to him, Victor is far like, more um, down on the idea and probably more realistically knows that people like himself are not going to find much acceptance still in the world. I've been thinking for some time now that perhaps you'd be happier somewhere else. Where? With boys like yourself. Where you could get out into the sun, get out of a dark room. We could exchange ideas, make something of your life. Where is this utopia, Father? I didn't know there were any freak shows left. Vic. Or uh, are you going to put me in a jar of alcohol and and on display in a chamber of horror? Don't talk like that. Why not? Afraid of the truth? 
Don't you see? There are no boys like myself. Your son is one of a kind. I'm a classic example of a mistake. Do whatever you want, father. Just leave me alone. It's not what I want. His father um, tries to help him out and goes to the government to basically ask them, is there any way that we can find somewhere for him? Are there any units for him? Or, you know, are there homes for people who afflicted with terrible disfigurements. He goes to see a woman who uh, basically tells him there's nothing they can do, they don't have anything that uh, deals with such deformity which would be shunned by society. But there is another answer, indeed an extreme one. She suggests that maybe, well there's two things she can, initially her only suggestion is euthanasia um, that's dismissed out of hand as being barbarism and, and quite rightly so the second uh, then she just finds out at the last minute just as he's leaving that there is a different possibility this is the future where there's rocket travel and distant planets where they now communicate with alien life um, and there's a chance that well there's a place that is desperate for people for men, young men in particular. They're desperate for them because they are well, they they don't have they don't have enough people. They they're so desperate that they're willing to pay for these people to fly over and arrive. They're willing to do all the work themselves. Uh, and, you know, they to help build the planet up, basically, um, physically, with uh, with with the with their labour to try and create a better world. Um, they know nothing else though they're not seeing these people and they don't know what 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 awaits them Victor is at the stage though of such desperation considering how he looks and how people react to his visage he says nothing can be worse than what he currently has he takes a rocket paid for by this alien race flies to another world, to distant, distant world, and meets a man, a normal human, plain and good-looking and young. And the conversation they have is confusing to Victor. Did you just get off the ship? From Earth? That's right. You the welcoming committee? Not really, I'm... Going back to Earth on the return leg. I've been waiting years to get permission. You're not from... Yes, I'm from here. This is the first exchange we've made. Your planet and mine. I wish you luck. You too. Uh, Could I ask you something? Why are you leaving? Look at me. What's, what's wrong? Are you kidding? What's wrong? You don't have to be kind. I'm used to being this way. I'm used to the reactions. Well, I hope everything turns out all right for you. So this conversation they have seems odd to him simply because, you know, he's a good-looking lad, and he, he seemed, but he seems to talk about how ugly he is. And uh, off he goes. And then 
finally, the actual real welcoming committee arrives to meet him. Uh, three or four young women, and this is where we hit our twist. And it, it, all those women look exactly like Victor, and not only that, they think he's quite the catch. So, really, in actual fact, Victor has finally come home. Uh, unbeknownst to him, he is surrounded now with people who are different, but in actual fact, to us, but in actual fact, exactly the same as him. And uh, it would appear to <laughs> to possibly those who have been a young teenager, you know, a young man in the past, when uh, that uh, he could be having a very good time of himself very shortly indeed. Okay. This is, um, well, first off, the, over the period of, this is episode 58, of the Night Guy podcast, I've spoken many times of the tensions between um, Jack Laird and Rod Sterling. Um, this is kind of going to round up those kind of tensions. Uh, I'm not going to go over that much uh, old ground. Um, the reason for that being that I've done that numerous times before and I think if you are listening to all these episodes and I've got a feeling that if you're the type of person that will listen to the episode of the different ones you probably are um, you probably know what I'm talking about already that said if you want to go over stuff there are some episodes that would help um, if you download Miss Lovecraft Sent Me uh, Fear of Spiders Question of Fear definitely Midnight Never Ends um, I think The Dear Departed as well you'll get more of an idea of the tensions that were running between Sterling and with Jack Laird. Uh, I think that will cover all, pretty much all, everything I've got to say. Uh, I had a quick rummage for everything to try and get, a, get an idea. Um, I didn't catch everything, obviously, but hopefully that will, that will help. Um, okay, on with, on with the story. Uh, well, on with, on with going over stuff. Right, the different ones, and it's a massive problem, there's a huge relation to Eye of the Beholder, the classic, one of the landmark Twilight Zone episodes. Um, and it it doesn't really hold up as well when put together between the two. The, it was rewritten to an extent um, and that hasn't helped. The story um but still at its heart, it does bear an uncanny resemblance in places to Eye of the Beholder. Um, much like A Fear of Spiders, uh, head story editor Gerald Sanford has a lot to say about his own feelings about rewriting the, the story. He says in uh, the quote in the, the After Hours Night Gallery tour book, is I had rewritten a script called The Different Ones. Aside from the original idea, there wasn't one word left of Rod's. His was awful, preachy, and it went on and on. We were watching a rough cut of the dailies with some advertising execs, and when it was over, one of the executives sitting right behind me said, boy, you can really tell a Rod Sterling script. And I wanted to tell him. He had nothing to do with this. And this was the situation with almost everything that Rod wrote for this particular show, because he was just not that, in, that interested in it. Okay. That isn't strictly right. 
as I mentioned before, there are, aren't that many stories that were rewritten. Some of them, um, like um, the little black bag, were rewritten for censorship reasons. The violence when man cuts his throat could not be seen on screen. Some of them were rewritten um, for the hell of it, in truth. Uh, that was the Jack Laird approach to kind of rewriting stuff. We'll go more into that detail about why that kind of things were happening in a minute. Um, in this case, question of fear is something that sticks... Not question of fear, fear of spiders is something that sticks in the mind that was kind of just rewritten. Um, on this example, on this story, much like fear of spiders, there isn't actually as much rewriting going on as... The uh, as our story editor, head story editor, gives himself credit for. The start is basically what is rewritten. It's cut down a bit, not hugely, in truth. Um, and one of the characters has been removed. The, the wife has been re- has been written out. And rather than the pain and anguish of the uh, the, f- the problems between well the the son who has been thrown out of society and the, the two the couple. Who you know, a couple who are desperately trying to come up with a solution of what to do and are desperate from the situation. Those two, that's been removed and basically been put to a rather blunt exchange between the son and the, the now widowed father, um, which is a shame. But you know, uh, it's not that it doesn't. It's not actually that detrimental. I mean, the problems with the script um, are still there, and the and, you know the problems with the story are already you know are still present. Without that rewrite, in fact, it, in truth, the father appears to be a bit of a you know a bit cold, uh, a bit heartless in his, in his dealings with his son. I suppose you could say you know that's fair enough after seventeen and a half years, and the and the son is pretty miserable in truth, understandably so. But you know he hasn't he's desperate. But you know, but some of that is from that. Some of that is also from the direction, um, the direction by. Um, by John Meredith Lucas, who makes it very, very cold. I mean, it's a futuristic setting, which kind of, you know, always gives that kind of cold walls kind of thing. But between him and the actual actor who plays Paul, Dana Andrews, who at one point when um, the big the big linchpin moment, the, the decision, when the decision's made that the son should take this plan to fly out to a different world I mean before that the woman who's like the office worker basically says you should just euthanize him you should kill him because there's no way he can make any life in this city in this country in this world with, with the, the disfigurement that he has um, which is really harsh and his response isn't quite the indignant rage that you probably would have got if uh, you know an office worker or an, 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 a government official suggests to you that you murder your own son because he won't fit in. He kind of a bit. He's not quite as aggrieved as possibly that would make. He's all a bit dialed in, and you know when he talks about his um, his son's his son's issues on like a, a, a te, you know a classic televiewer kind of scene, which is like a TV screen. You know we have like a video video telephone. Um, he kind of like turns away, and it's a bit like quivering bop, bottom lip rather than a man who's been traumatized. By the horrors that by what's happened over the last 17 and a half years and the loss of his wife as well and instead he kind of just kind of you know very British kind of mm, terrible stuff 
rather than, you know, possibly how you would expect a man like in that position to feel. So the decision to so that makes the decision to actually fly over, you know, to the one of the most distant worlds that the Brit the British know in a huge rocket ship for God knows how long it's even mentioned how long the flight is. It seems almost throwaway, like, well, you know, why not? I can't be as bad as this. Ooh, terrible. And that's a real problem. That's a problem, you know, with the direction and stuff. Um the makeup so gives the game away as well. Salem Scripps originally said, you know, kind of gave it this brutal disfigurement. And let's not beat about the bush. Did Victor's look, that mask he wears, you know, it makes him look like an alien. So when it's like, there's an alien world he can fly to, you're like, oh, I. <laughs> I know exactly where this story's going to go now. What a disappointment that is. I had the beholder and, you know, when when Tom reaches that story, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm pretty sure plenty of people will want to wade in about their own feelings and opinions on that story when, at the Twilight Zone podcast. But it's a, it's a weighty one. It still carries a, uh, a feeling and a, a sense and a message. And, and like all good Twilight Zone stories, it's a message that even if you know the script, the weight of the message still carries through. The moral of the tale is still there and still very strong. In this one, it isn't really. It's kind of just throwaway. It's a bit. It's the ending is very abrupt, and it feels like a gag. Like hey, he's gonna get his fine, you know. He's he, he, he's he's gonna have a great time on this new planet now, and all these you know. And obviously, it's got that classic, cliched or all alien speak English kind of motif. But um, that's a real shame that that ha- they feel they have to, you know, it has to be so brutal and abrupt, and it isn't. You don't see relief. Uh, 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 Victor's um, redemption, almost by the by the people that are now around him, it's almost just like a well, a, a sex joke in truth, and that and, that, and that's a real shame. Um, also, thing I'd say is um, this isn't the first time this has happened for Night Gallery. Um, Lone Survivor and Judgment Night is always the one that sticks in the mind that feels so similar, so so similar to a Twilight Zone episode um, that, you know, you can't get away from it when you're watching it. Um, Midnight Never Ends, just as a general feel of Twilight Zone about it. Um, but, uh, you know, Lone Survivor really does. And this one, probably more so. And it, it's, you know, it's, of, uh, it's it's not a help, really, uh, to the episode at all. Um, I think, if you hadn't seen that episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, just you know, taking us away as Rod Sailing fans for a minute, um, and talking about it in more general terms. I do think that possibly you you would be able to get away with it a bit more. Uh, it would stop being a, you know a you know a quite clanging episode. It still wouldn't be brilliant, but I think there's more to it than possibly as a fan the closeness that it gives. You you really can struggle with it. Um, I do know that a lot of people blame the rewrites for um, the fact that the story was ruined that's partly true but I mean generally the entire thing was so mismanaged um, that you can't just blame the the rewrite you have to blame the direction the acting and generally the pace of the piece as well Um, the emotional rot that underlines in um, Serling's script is, stri- is, mo- is stripped away and replaced instead 
with some of the flippancy that can um, that can dominate night gallery episodes um, and that is frankly quite a shame so this is a problem that does pop up a bit with Sirens writing and I think part of the reason for a lot of the tensions between Laird and Serling executive producer Jack Laird and, and Rod Serling were simply because of differences in opinion and the way style and the way that they, they worked as writers Jack Laird was an unusual man a man who liked um, you know a man of unusual taste and uh, a little bit avant-garde in his stylings and also a man who but a man who liked to take risks but in terms of writing he was very a man who believed in the craft of it. A man who'd worked over the, behind the typewriter a long time. A man who also thought that most writing could be improved with a good editor. Serling wrote like a rock star, basically. <laughs> he, you know, he'd sit by the pool and dictate to a, um, to a secretary who'd bash it all out on a, on a, on a typewriter. Um, which is brilliant. And I love him for that. I imagine him with his glasses on a you know, a drink beside him, a cigarette in one hand, just casually dictating the different ones to to his secretary, which we'd better bash it out. What this meant, though, was that um, well, there was a feeling that I didn't really grasp that he was running over, and I think that's unfair. I think that is unfair to him, um, because a lot of the time the scripts he was putting in were, you know, they were 22 minutes long. That is a classic half-hour story uh, for US TV. Um, with all the other breaks and whatnot, so that makes sense to me. That that thing's like, yeah, that why wouldn't you be banging in the minute at twenty two minutes? Um, so sometimes you know, caught in the moment, his his language was you know, and that's a, be- a good for Rod Serling because this is what makes him so great. His language can be quite literary, quite flowery, and that's and that you know that some a lot of the time with Night Gallery, I think it's almost. I mean, the good thing about this podcast is that I'm able to strip away a lot of the distraction from some of the production and, and, and show some of the brilliant writing that is, that is there from Salem's work and, and doesn't quite get the uh, the attention that it does from Twilight Zone. But at the same time, Salem, uh, uh, Laird is very much up and down and very much a guy who likes his writing tight. And I mentioned this a few times before, but there is another issue with this. Herb Rice, who's an associate producer for, for uh, Night Gallery, who went on to do uh, Stingray as well, and Star Trek The Next Generation, says, Rod was a wonderful guy. He'd read a lot of the classics in his life, and he had the unfortunate habit of submitting stories that, later on, turned out to be Robert Louis Stevenson, Edgar and Poe, and not realising it. Jack would come and scream and march over to my desk, slap the script down and say, you've got to tell Rod he can't do this without giving credit to Robert Louis Stevenson, or whoever it was. Next came the diplomatic dance with Salem, right? This is um, so they had to um, give credit to the you know to try and give credit to the original author. Um, you know, Herb continues like he was doing homage to the masters without stepping on his toes. So we'd have to tell Rod and say, "Jack just read your script and thinks that there was some kind of a similarity, masquerade death, full Alsusia, or whatever it was." And Rod would go, "No, no, no, that's mine, that's mine." So then Wright would have to then point out the plot similarities to which Sterling would at length sheepishly concede and Riley comment, okay, but I do it better. Um, he wasn't... Um, Herb says that basically that, you know, he's not deliberately trying to rip off the um, the classics, as it were. 
uh, and great writers, but instead was trying to, um, you know, you're influenced by it. And, uh, uh, you know, this kind of, this problem is always that um, as a writer, you do tend to, you know, be influenced by other people and uh, either subconsciously or, you know, the Tarantino idea of taking somebody else's ideas and story and then rewriting them in a in a way that um, you know makes it your own, um, and that's fair enough. I mean, Star Wars is a you know a homage to Flash Gordon. Tarantino's made a good living out of you know repackaging various other directors' works and making it his own in a certain kind of way. Um, you know the the similarities between Hong Kong action films and Reservoir Dogs, and obviously Kill Bill. It you know references films like Lady Snowblood and whatever, and there's always going to be that kind of element to your work and in this case that is true also with um, with Night Gallery um, you know Salem takes other people's ideas and changes them I mean we um, at the Twilight Zone Network we also do that you know we kind of highlight the things that you know influenced his work like obviously putting Dimension X in suspense that kind of stuff and also with Walking Distance our new line to try the, the, of uh, articles trying to give an idea of the the world that was it was at that time and how that influenced the writing of Serling too. So there is all that going on. Um, I think I mean obviously I've just mentioned that it was Herb Wright who would be doing these phone calls a lot of the time, um, and I think that was another big problem. You've got this kind of issue with uh, Jack Laird and with Sailing and then both um, basically it's, you know going at each other and uh, uh, but not really doing enough Sailing was always and I mentioned this before but I think it does bear, bear worth repeating Sailing would try and uh, contact and debate the changes that are being made with Laird but only really realise what was going on uh, with his scripts or, or with any of like the, the way stuff was getting moved around on Night Gallery afterwards when it was being shown and that's led to him taking his arguments to the newspapers as he you know his problems with the newspapers as I discussed with uh, in a uh, Miss Lovecraft sent me you know he'd all, by the time this was broadcast he'd already been in the papers voicing his displeasure at the way the uh, the episode the episodes were being put together and how little control he had I know that's part of a contractual issue, and he, and he thought that is because his name was on it, there would be enough. But in reality, it certainly wasn't, and it was very much right the way through, right until the end. Jack Laird's show, and um, Sterling had to fight his corner, and he did that excellently well in the end. And really, as 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 always, as as, as I've said many times, there are a few stories that are rewritten, and um, I think that's down to. Sailing's fighting spirit. Okay, that's going to cover us for. I'm not going to go on about the Jack Laird um, Rod Sailing problems really anymore. And this is really the last story that features such a hefty, you know, rewrite that goes into like scenes being changed and whatever. Um, they did keep quite a tight lid on it in terms of showing a united front to the production crew. Obviously, there was times at Sailing. Kind of came out swinging in the papers to um, to kind of you know show that he was um, 
you know, displeased with the way that um, the execs were acting to him, considering the fact his name was on it. But really, the next big flashpoint comes at the end of season two and the beginning of season three, and that will be dealt with at the start, at the start of the first episode of season three, where we'll go into the changes in the uh, design of the show in terms of going from the hour-long format to the half-hour format and to mainly single stories. Victor Koch from the from the planet Earth. Very pleased to welcome you, Mr. Koch, to the planet Boring. <laughs> He's gorgeous. Quite to hear you. Okay. Um, just some housekeeping. Uh, can I ask a f- well, it's a favour. If you've just listened to what I've just said and um, you can remember any other podcast in which I kind of go into a great deal of length about the Laird sale and stuff, can you let me know? Um, can you just drop us a line? Mainly, I mean, I'm not asking you to do any search or anything, but if you can just remember any, that would be really useful. Um, mainly because uh, I've tried to, I'd listen through like for quite a few, just trying to spot them, but because like, we've got, we've just, there's hours of this stuff now <laughs> and uh, I didn't make a note at the time. Which ones will work? Which ones they are, and it's occurred to me now that people might just want to listen to those bits. Um, so if you do, can you drop us? So just yeah, if you can remember any, just drop us a line. Um, the easiest way is for our website, which is www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com, and there's links to our Facebook and our Twitter there. You can leave any comments basically on this article and I'll be able to I'll see them when I'm you know they pop up quite quickly and I'll be able to see them uh, at the moment if you go over to the Twilight Zone network you can see a story called well there's an article called the Sputnik moment which is a uh, documentary maker David Hoffman has uh, let us um, host his documentary about uh, well it's called the Sputnik moment but what it's actually about is the um, the period of time, an incredible period of time in history, which uh, when uh, Sputnik One was first launched, the first man-made satellite into the in, into into orbit back in uh, 1957. And I think that you know, again, you know, we, I was talking before about the tone that this you know that we've been by creating this stuff that we're given. Um, Giving a bit more of a feel for the background and why these these kind of incredible stories appeared at the time they did, um, so that's well worth a look. Uh, take a look there if you've got the time to look at it. It's, it's a fantastic documentary. Um, next week, next week we are discussing Tell David, which is short. Uh, well, it's not short actually. It's about twenty minutes long. It is okay. It's fine. Um, yeah. I mean, this isn't one of my favourite complete episodes of Night Gallery. I, I think it's, you know, normally I say that there's always something that really stands out. Uh, and this one's kind of just all right, really, all the way through. But, um, you know, it's not its best, but it's still quite good. So if you uh, if you want any feedback, you want to get cold to me, that would be great. Please do so for our website. And uh, you can email me as well at chris at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. So until then until I speak to you next week. Take care and goodbye.